Hey guys, Matt Gurney here for Jen Gerson, the latest episode of the Lions Experimental Podcast. And actually, we hope our last experimental podcast, we hope that by next week, maybe the week after that, if we need a few extra days to pull things together, you will have a whole new line podcast experience. We have finally partnered with people who can help us clean these things up, make them sound their best. So we're looking forward to bringing that to you starting either next week or in a pinch the week after. And as this is the end of the Lions experimental phase, one thing that I do want to draw our listeners' attention to is the fact that we may be opening this podcast for advertising and sponsorship. That's right, Matt. I am going to absolutely shamelessly sell ourselves and our services. Um, always be closing, as they say. So if this is something that you, a listener, or you have some money you want to throw around and, and get your uh, message or your product out there, please uh, send us a note, line editor at protonmail.com. For now, though, we got a lot to talk about today. Let's jump into it. We have right. a lot going on today. We have a lot going on today. Um, I actually want to, I, I as an outsider, want to throw something at you because I've just been watching the um, uh, the situation, obviously, with Alberta. We, we actually touched on this briefly last week, uh, the E. coli situation here. And I think kind of last week we covered all the mandatory, it's heartbreaking ground. But something else that's been coming up, and I, I say this as a guy looking in, I've been baffled by failures in the response. And I don't just necessarily mean the medical response. I know there's a lot of sick people, a lot of sick kids, and it does look like they're getting the care they need. But I know that your your new chief medical officer of health had come out and uh, gave a press conference this week, and it didn't seem to go well for him. He was slow to do it. He didn't impress when he actually did it. I know that the premier has now given a, a press conference as well. Politicians talking don't cure the sick, but a politician that says nothing or a chief public medical officer of health who says nothing while people are sick turns a medical problem into a political problem here. I want to ask a question and it's probably going to piss some people off, but I'm asking this is wide open. We have in Alberta a new chief medical officer of health because the old one got sacked and replaced. How would because Dina of because Hinshaw... of sort of COVID backlash and, and and hangover issues? Yeah, would Dina Hinshaw have handled this better, at least politically? Yes, I, I'm sorry, but that the answer to that is an unequivocal yes. This is a government that is facing some real consequences as a result of allowing their uh, uh, trauma over COVID to overshadow their 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 governance capabilities. So they fired Dina Hinshaw about uh, a year ago. Um, obviously, this is because Daniel Smith and a lot of the USP people, P people were very angry at Hinshaw and the orders, the COVID orders that came down. By the end, Hinshaw was sort of everybody's um, least favorite chief medical officer in ways that personally, I think were very unfair. Like the left was pissed off at, at her because she had um, advocated for opening up during summer. The right was pissed off at her because she became the target for um, all of their COVID restrictions and hatred. And she she couldn't win but by the end of the, the thing. And there was ongoing questions about how independent was she? To what extent was she influenced by cabinet or influencing cabinet? And, and you know, these are private conversations that we can probably never know the full answer to. But that all aside, no one can dispute that Dina Hinshaw was very, very good about getting up in front of the microphone every day, giving clear information, reassuring people. She was excellent at that. Her replacement, Dr. Mark Joffrey, who listen, I have no questions to doubt his 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 technical expertise, but part of the job of a chief medical officer is is a public facing role. 
And he has not given, a, as far as I know, a single press conference in the year that he has been uh, appointed to this role. So, okay, that's fine. But his first pet press conference came on September 12th, which was a week after this outbreak had started. And well into the point where everybody was like, what the mother F is going on? Like, what is happening here? And in his first press conference, he was asked about that. Like, where have you been? And his response was something to the fact of, well, we just didn't, I didn't see the urgency in doing this public briefing. Like, okay, Mm -hmm. let me be clear here. I have no reason to suspect that what's happening behind the scenes has been inadequate. I've seen yep. no evidence of that. Yep. I mean, I have some questions about hey, a- how AHS has handled this. There are some questions about whether or not this kitchen was shut down um, or should have been shut down. There are questions about uh, about a lot of different things about the HS side. But as far as I can tell, once the outbreak had taken over and, and, and protocols were put in place, medical staff and AHS have been handling this appropriately. I'm taking that for granted. But that's not the entirety of a medical officer's job. The other half of the chief medical officer's job is communicating in a timely and regular fashion what's happening to the public and reassuring the public that they're on it and that they can trust the food processing and the health system to to have their backs and to make sure that there are the issues in the system are being radically rectified. There's been no indication of that from him. So the fact that he didn't see the urgency in doing that until a week after the outbreak started is indica- indicative of, of baffling incompetence on at least one level. The fact that the health minister didn't see that this was necessary is indicative of baffling incompetence on at least one level. I have my own pet theories as to why this has happened and why it took the government so long to respond. Some of those pet theories I can talk about, and some of those pet theories I cannot. I think there's some real questions about, how should I say this, the competency of, of, of the cabinet and the government to operate and, and take initiative in the face of a crisis, I think, that need to be raised here. Um, and I think that there are some real questions about whether or not Joffrey had the resources or the um, political new to understand that his role in, would involve reassuring the public at a much earlier state. So um, we just came out of a second press conference that happened this Friday when this is being recorded. Uh, Premier Smith herself came out. This is the first time she's come out publicly, aside from a tweet, uh, to, to address this. And and you know she expressed, um, she, you know, she almost started crying on the stage. And, and I don't think that was disingenuous. I think her, her emotions on this are very, very real. But I also am questioning whether or not there has been a communication breakdown between the health professionals who are actually dealing with the case on the ground and how serious this was happened and how serious the actual outbreak is. I'm wondering if there was a breakdown of communication there. Um, and I, I do have some real questions about whether or not Smith is being well served here in that regard. So th- th- those are just some of the things that are, are are popping around in my head right now. I'm going to write about a column about this for the globe on Monday. So keep, keep an eye on that. But you know, there, there's a, I don't have questions right now about the health side. I do have questions right now about the political side. Yeah. You know, I, three quick responses uh, to what you had to say there. First of all, during COVID, Hinshaw seemed to be the one who had the most wildly erratic public approval mm-hmm. hero public enemy number one hero again everybody hates her i i do think being a public health official was a tough job during the pandemic because you were never 
you were never going to be on the right side of a significant percentage of the population, but mm -hmm. okay. The other thing I would say is you and I had said many times during COVID that even when they were right on the science, they were terrible at the comms mm -hmm. and how every public health unit in this country needs to have actual savvy communicators embedded with them. Yes. The other thing that comes up, and you had said you're not questioning the response itself. You're questioning the politics of this. I don't mean this as a sharp criticism, and no one inside in Alberta should feel attacked by this, because I'm honestly asking the question neutrally. I'm a few provinces away, and I'm reading like a daily update about it. I'm not fully dialed in. But it seems to me that it's strange that we don't have more information. And I just mean yes. that in, so yes. like this is not new. Like these kids have been sick for a while. We are getting mm -hmm. information about the number of sick adults, the number of sick kids, their approximate status. We're getting health updates on them here. But my understanding is that actually figuring out what happened here, tracing it back to not only a particular kitchen, but apparently a particular meal served by that kitchen because kids who ate the other option didn't get sick. It's coming from parents. Yep. It's and, like and I'm reading it in, in like the news. Why hasn't the government come out like to, to the point of comms? We, we sent our inspectors in. We've been running samples in the laboratory. We've been able to identify this, that, and the other thing. It's they, they a weird did, absence. Yeah, they, they came out today and said, look, we still can't trace this to a specific thing. We've gone into the lab and, you know, we've done testing on 45 different samples. We're waiting back to hear from us. So they've done that. But yeah, parents have more or less figured out what's going on here. And I think that the most, like I said, I'm not not coming at this from a place of expertise. I'm coming at this as someone who sort of absorbed the information. It seems to me like the most probable source of this was a was an undercooked meatloaf. Um, this undercooked meatloaf, I don't think either didn't go to all of the daycares that the kitchen served, or it did go to all the daycares that the kitchen served, but some daycares must have had additional heating protocols in place to kill E. coli, and some daycares didn't. Um, that is the possibility. And the other thing that seems to have been a contributing factor is that the actual vehicle that transported the food to the daycares wasn't properly refrigerated. So if you have slight, even slightly undercooked meatloaf, put it in a big pan, portion it out, stick it in a truck, the truck isn't properly heated, E. coli goes crazy, there you go. Um, there's other some a couple of other interesting side notes in all of this that may be relevant, and that is which daycares recorded outbreaks and which daycares didn't. Um, it looks like the daycares that did record outbreaks were owned by a similar um, company that owns the kitchen. So uh, whether or not that's just, that could just be a coincidence, that could be differential standards, we don't know. The other interesting thing is that the kitchen is partially owned by former Liberal MP Kent Hare. So that's an interesting thing, maybe relevant, may not be relevant. But that is something to be noted. Um, so yeah, we don't have all the information. It seems to me like the parents have a pretty good idea of, of what caused this. And you know, given previous E. coli outbreaks that were of this magnitude, um, I mean, all E. coli outbreaks essentially can be traced some way or another to, 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 to cattle. Like yeah, either, either cattle runoff or improperly cooked cattle meat E. coli is sort of rampant in, in beef. So Chicken given that they had- Chicken is more salmonella. Oh, you're right. Yeah, most yeah, of the, okay. most, not all, but most E. coli can be traced to either, or for example, it would be uh, a cattle manure, improperly treated water, then spraying yeah, lettuce or something. Right. That's, that's, that would be a common form of E. coli. So you can't rule out the possibility that this was 
um, sort of E. coli infested waters that were then were then then washed lettuce. Like that is a possibility. Yeah. But it seems like right now the most likely a, a culprit here was undercooked meatloaf. Um, but again, that's coming from the parents, right? Who figured this out? Like it's it's the fact that we don't have clear answers from Alberta Health Services at this point is really concerning. The other thing that's really concerning is um, when was the kitchen? So there were multiple violations of the kitchen prior to this outbreak. Like, uh, and and there are some valid questions about whether or not AHS had the appropriate authority or took the appropriate authority sh to shut this kitchen down and should have cut shut, shut it down earlier. I think that we will see some legislative reform as a result of that on the on the, on the public health health act. So we're going to see some action on that. Smith said that today, on Friday. Um, and then the other question in all of this that I still have outstanding, and I, I, it's just a question for me at this point, is whether or not there was a period of time from the beginning of the outbreak to the uh, inspection that AHS did prior to that beginning of the outbreak in which the kitchen might have been able to clean up its mess. Um, that is a question for me because that would explain to me why it's so hard for AHS to be tracking down the source of the E. coli. For example, if they had cleared out their their freezers of all meat product. If they had done that, that could be explained why we're not getting clear answers sooner about, about the origins. Um, so this is obviously bad. Um, it's bad all around. I still am not entirely sure that the politicians understand the scope of how bad this is or could be. I don't know if the politicians or their communication staff quite get it yet. Um, I think they're starting to. Um, but this is, when I say that this is sort of, it's not as bad as Walkerton, but it will come a second to Walkerton is kind of where I'm placing this. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 it's no bueno. Um, and I no say bueno. that no children have died, thank God. Uh, and hopefully that will continue to be, be the case. Some of these kitties are pretty sick, though. Ten of these kids are now on dialysis. We know that... Um, the particular condition that this leads to uh, very frequently causes life long-term life-altering effects, especially in the kidneys. Um, it's 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 probable that some of them might have to deal with um, severely impaired kidney function or even kidney transplants transplants in the near future. Then also, of course, the parents actually released a the parents who were the kid the sick kids released an open letter on on Thursday, and it is devastating. It's straight up like basically where the fuck have the politicians been to keep? Yeah, no, I on. I saw it. It's and it's it's like our kids are not only it's not just bloody diarrhea like the kids are actually passing parts of their own bodies. Yeah. It's it's incredibly bad, um, and of course we know that the the mortality rate for this type of a disease, for especially for children under five, is is high. So no children have died, and I I hope that that remains the case. Of course, of course, but. The, the difference between this is and Walkerton is that Walkerton sort of in, um, got about 2,000 people sick, but it got 2,000 people that were all ages sick. This particular outbreak is particularly bad because even though there's only sort of 360 confirmed cases, they're all in children. And children are way more likely to suffer very severe outcomes. I do think so, some adult staff were affected, but have not had the, um, yeah. the severe if or you as and I, severe. If you and I get... E. coli, I mean, chances are we'll be fine. Yeah. If our kids get E. coli, that's a different conversation. So um, it's, it's you know, and the, even in Walkerton, we saw examples. Actually, I just saw this, but the Toronto Star did a story from 2018 of a guy who got 
such bad outcome, long-term outcomes from work to a, a fully aged adult male that he actually requested made because his quality of life had declined to such an, uh, um, uh, to such an extent. So Walkerton is still killing people, right? So this is, this is so, so, so bad. And I still don't entirely think that the staff around Alberta understand just how bad it is. But anyway, that's, that's a column that is to come. And I know we should, we should do a little dispatch board about it for sure. One of the things I, I just find interesting about this, and I, I, I'm sorry to reduce this to a political abstract here, because I know the story is the kids, but when I said to you at the the outset, would Hinshaw have done better? It strikes me that this, as awful as it is, and I, and I don't want anyone to think I'm downplaying this, this is a more routine case for a public health unit. Mm-hmm. It is a food contamination outbreak at multiple settings, which is more like the work we would normally be expecting them to do. The work they had to do during COVID is the kind of work, fingers crossed, they only have to do once every hundred years or so. Mm-hmm. And if you're a public health official and you're you're struggling with a, a Spanish flu or COVID-19, you, you've basically drew the short end of the stick generationally because like the guys before and after you are dealing with you know, there's a there's a bad gonorrhea outbreak or there's like someone undercooked the meatloaf. This is more the daily work of public health. And, you know, I would like to think that the COVID experience has left us with sort of a battle-hardened cadre of veterans. But what I actually am wondering now, maybe particular in Alberta, if what it actually did is it wiped out the veterans and uh, they've yeah. all been fired or they quit yeah. or they retired they they early. And now yeah. when confronted even with, a, um, and again, I say this not to downplay the illness, but something that's more routine and more foreseeable in, in the realm of public health response, instead of having an experience that led to a seasoning and a hardening of the officials, you had those officials get fired or leave, and now you got people there who have badly handled what is a more foreseeable public health emergency. I think one of, there are a couple of big questions that this government is going to be left with politically. One is, why is it taking so long for them to respond at a political level? I think we're going to get answers to that question in the near future, but on that, I will remain silent. Um, I think the second question is, firstly, are there, is a, is all the Alberta Health Service empowered enough to deal with ongoing infractions? And and I think there's fair fair question about that, but that can be, that's a reform that can be addressed. And the third question I think people are going to walk away from this is whether or not it was wise to to fire Dina Hinshaw, or would it have made more sense to put your 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 weird COVID batshittery aside for five seconds, and keep someone with a with a proven track record of experience in public health files? And I say that as someone like I don't think that that's even a left or a right question because by the end Dina Hinshaw had become the bogeyman, the villain, or the hero to both the left or the right, depending you know, on what week it was. Depending on what week it was, right? Yeah. So uh, that's fair, but for, you know, uh, uh, for Dr. Joffrey to be coming out and having his first press conference in a year already late and saying, well, we didn't see the urgency. I mean, that's, we've got, we've got some judgment issues there and it doesn't, it doesn't reassure Albertans. Now he did come out today on Friday and apologized for that and, and tried to uh, express himself a little bit more completely about how much he does understand the seriousness of this conversation. As had, on, on Friday, they actually had a really good press conference on this. The only problem with it was that it was a week late. 
and it took and it took an open letter from the parents talking about how their children's organs were falling out to finally prompt that response. I was just um I'm gonna I'm gonna count on you to, to stay on top of this. Like I, I'm reading yeah. the daily updates, but um, this one's on me. It's good. Um, uh, one of the things that I'm sorry, I just I I people who are watching this on the video instead of listening to the podcast, they're gonna see I'm, I'm a little bit distracted, Jenna. And apologies for that. I don't want you to feel neglected here. But there's been breaking news in the last hour, as you know, and I've just still been getting messages as it comes in. Uh, Metroland Media Group is it's shutting down a huge percentage of its operations and that just came out on friday uh metroland media group is a kind of sort of a sister company to the toronto star uh these are a series of papers daily papers in larger markets like hamilton st Catharines, uh in, in ontario just as two examples but also uh many um weekly papers in smaller communities the uh, company is letting go effective immediately a huge percentage of its staff. I think about two thirds of the staff. It is going into bankruptcy protection, and it is uh, sh shutting down print operations at least. I'm, I'm not clear at this time because this is all happening so fast. If it's print and digital, or just print at its smaller uh, outlets, I, I don't know if there's a lot, Jen, that you and I can add to what we've already said so many times in, in different contexts, except kind of to underline yet again, five years ago, you would have 20 journalists let go at a newspaper and we'd go, that's oh, a tough day for the news in Canada. We're losing entire outlets now and we're losing them fast. And I think we've sort of moved uh, into the, uh, the old, the old, um, I don't want to call it a joke because it's not a joke, but the old saying, how did you go bankrupt? Well, gradually, then suddenly, and I know it sounds like a joke here, or at least I don't mean it as a, as a cruel joke with literal bankruptcy for Metroland here, but that's what life is like sometimes. Problems build up slowly and gradually for a while, but then they just, they, they kill you. They hit you. Canadian legacy media has moved from gradually into suddenly, I think. Um, 600 jobs, dozens of those are journalists. Many others were support, uh, support uh, personnel. And what's interesting, and I have not had a chance to absorb all the information on this yet, Metroland is also killing completely its uh, flyer delivery business. There's just no money in this anymore. And that's such just a perfect little symbol of how the advertising trends have changed in a way that is killing an entire industry. So in terms of impacts on people, there's one thing that I will note is part of the reason why the public knowledge coming out about the E. coli crisis is as slow as it is, is because we don't have the people anymore. We, you know, five, six, even 10 years ago, an outbreak of this nature would have 20 journalists on the government's ass from day three, people who had real institutional knowledge of an and past experience with E. coli outbreaks, who would have an understanding of how serious it was. And they would be just on tails for, yep. right from day one. Oh, and then you'd have favors to pull in as yeah, well. Yeah, you'd have favors to pull in. Yeah, absolutely. Personal relationships. Part of the reason why we haven't seen that is because bluntly, there simply aren't the same number of journalists. Those journalists don't have the beat reporting or the experience that they previously did. A lot of those journalists are younger. They don't have the institutional knowledge anymore to understand how serious some of these things are. And, you know, it's just, it's just a lot of this is a, is, is the product of a, of a degraded communication system. Jen, you know, what's worse even than that though. You're right. And I, I endorse that fully. This still happened in Alberta's largest city. 
Imagine if this had happened in smaller communities where the only media coverage would be someone driving out from Calgary for the day to cover it. Yeah. And and I'll take my own ownership here. Is it like, uh, like I I haven't been on the government's ass about the E. coli stuff because I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, columnist who writes on, I'm I'm a non-specialist. I'm not a beat reporter. You know what I mean? Like I'm not the person who's doing daily reporting anymore. Um, But you know, that's it. That's what it is. Right. Um, the other thing that I'm going to note as is that Metroland is a pretty severe fatality for Canadian media, and I'm willing to bet solid dollars that we can pin that to C18. It's become pretty obvious in the re- in recent weeks that uh, if there is going to be C18 money at all, and that's still an if, it's Absolutely. years it's years out. It's yep. not gonna it's not gonna come point. And I think a lot of media organizations were kind of ha- expecting that deals were going to be struck over the summer. And there was a part of the reason why it's um, urgency clauses were essentially built into the legislation. They were they forced CRTC to come up with draft regulations really soon. That was built along the expectation by, I think, a lot of the newspapers and the media outlets that that would get money flowing, that they were going to get money flowing into their coffers by year end. And it's pretty obvious that that is, even under the most optimistic scenarios, that isn't going to happen. It's going to be 2025, if not 2026, before any of these media organizations see real money if it comes at all. And that daunting realization, I think, has contributed to many of these owners saying it's over. Um, so I don't think Metroland, Metroland is going to be the first we see, but I have a sneaking suspicion that it's not going to be the last major closure we see in the next sort of six to ten weeks. Well, what's gonna um, happen as a result of as a result of that that math. So Metroland, as of now, is still attempting to protect its daily paper markets. That's the bigger cities. Um, The next axe to fall will be that they can't protect those anymore. And then what we're going to see, and I'm kind of amazed it hasn't happened already, is it moving up into the major cities um, where... I mean, Calgary is a major city. Ottawa is a major city. Montreal is the second largest city in the country. Their daily newspapers are probably down to a staff of 15. So what is a paper in Hamilton getting by with or London or St. Catharines or Kingston? And you, you think these things through. What, what what I don't know if people have understood, and it's something it's hard to see from the outside is how the brands are surviving and the institutions are surviving, but they've been hollowed out to a handful of people. But by hook and by crook, the in, they're still able to put out enough content that you probably don't realize how few people work there. And I have found it interesting over the years to say to people, how many people do you think work at that newspaper? Like your your daily paper? Oh, 100 at least. And it's like 12. Yeah. It's- and... So what what is happening every year is that the forecasts for revenue get smaller. So the companies have to trim expenses to be under that forecast. And what I think has been happening in recent months is that the forecasts for revenue are getting so bad, the trimming is getting desperate to keep expenses. Well, and then level. and then the other thing that's keeping up that's that's contributing to these things is of course inflation costs on paper over the last oh, few years yeah. have been have oh, been absolutely Delivery, crushing. Yeah. Ink, yep. this and this is and this is also where the why the flyer business which used to be like licensed to print money was flyers right but this is why this has collapsed as well the other thing is also as more and more companies have gone from owned infrastructure to leased infrastructure leases have gone up the other thing as well is that as uh, debt costs have gone up 
Um, of course, secured, of course, if yeah. your debt wasn't secured, now all of a sudden these things are now starting to take over as well. So uh, basically all of the broader macroeconomic conditions are are going to start biting down on, on media hard. And because the C18 money isn't going to start rolling in time, a lot of people are going to have to give it up. I mean, what I think is so interesting about um, the Metroland closures is that uh, the individuals who have been fired aren't even going to get severance. I saw that. That's awful. There's That's, no there's, money in the company for severance. They literally got this so down to the wire that they didn't leave enough money for severance for the employees when they had to close down. The employees are now people gone effective immediately. No severance. No severance. So at a time when cost of living is soared, housing yeah. costs are soaring. I had heard a rumor a year or two ago when one of the larger media companies was doing layoffs. I had heard a rumor that they were slow rolling the approvals so that they didn't have to pay out a ton of severance at once um that kind of they had to kind of it was just a rumor i can't speak to it or not but just it kind of made sense because that's something i'd heard a lot of but no i mean this is right in the news reports about this metroland is not paying termination or severance hey because they don't have the cash yeah so i mean and that's 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 fairly astonishing oh like that's so that's so irresponsible you can't 600 people are now creditors and maybe they get a pittance in a court filing one day and that's Years before we now. get that's before you even begin to talk about lost pension like that's gone like it's just it's it's pretty catastrophic so that's worth noting um let's talk but, a little bit um there's a few other things we want to talk about i know we want to talk about the housing and grocery announcements but i think before we do that we should probably just set it up a little bit conservatives and liberals both having um conventions or like the conservatives had a policy mm-hmm. convention our last uh, episode here was just as it was getting started, and then the Liberals this week had a caucus retreat. So I don't know if like, yeah, we we had a pretty meaty dispatch uh, about the Conservative Convention. Probably, I think the only point I would make um, here on the podcast is that I know that like there's been a lot of attention paid to the Conservatives for their you know, controversial, socially conservative policy motions. Meh. The, I think the conservatives will win these fights. If it, yeah. it, if if they if the liberals think they're going to wedge the conservatives on uh, drug rehabilitation and um, tra- trans women's rights issues, I think they've got a shock coming. Yep. I just think the conservatives will win. Yep. I have nothing to add. Um, <laughs> what did you think of the liberal caucus retreat? Um, well, I mean, it's interesting to me that they've come forward. I, I don't really have an opinion on the Liberal Caucus retreat. Um, I think that your observations about when we were before we started this podcast, you'd made the observation that the more people claim that the Liberals can make a comeback, the less oh. convinced you are. <laughs> and I think that your reasoning for that is more or less correct. The, the, the problems that they are facing now are so systemic and so inherent to their political culture, to their party's political culture and outlook yeah. that I, I'm not, I'm not sure it's fixable. Well, I was um, joking with you. It's sort of like saying to, to your partner, honey, I can change. Let's not get divorced. I just need to change literally everything about myself and our decade of accumulated history. Like at a certain point, the problem is you. So another interesting thing that I would note is it, it it was fascinating to me to see liberals trot out people like Jean Chrétien to talk about how Canada's not broken, sir. Um, well, they're also that is what Chrétien to... sounds like. Yeah, literally. Um, and at the same time, they were doing 
I don't think you had you had some smaller uh, lower MPs on the on the hierarchy bringing back the specter of Mike Harris and the common sense. Oh, yeah. Some of the Ontario and, MPs are tweeting about. Yeah. And it's so fascinating to me. And to me, it was so indicative of and I mean, I've written this before, but it was so indicative of how trapped in the 90s the liberals are. <laughs> The, 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 it, it's like you talk to some liberal supporter and it's still 1993 in their head they have 1993 concepts of crime they have 1993 concepts of canada's place in the world they have 1993 yeah. con- like this was just a moment in time that stopped and this is also you see this in the demographic breakouts of liberal diehard supporters they're old um they're people who don't understand that it's 1990s was now 30 years ago <laughs> like that uh, I just look there. In 1993, I was a child, <laughs> you know. Um, so uh, they're really trapped in this 1990s nostalgia. Always have been this idea, and this in some ways that makes so much sense, right? This was a moment when when Canada was riding high economically and 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 reputationally. It was a moment also of austerity when the rules you know came to the bat and restored fiscal austerity and 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 all these sorts of things. So I can understand why that was a a, a bit of a golden age for the Liberals. But they don't understand that it was also a golden age for a lot of their supporters and their supporters are now dying. Um, and they're not getting replaced by young people because the young people are looking at this going like your 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 view of the world is just completely ancient to me. Like you don't you don't understand what we're talking about or what we're going through at all. Like it's it's completely out of touch. Yeah, I think a liberal party could defeat Pierre Polyev. I just don't think this liberal party can. And I think like the, the weaknesses of this liberal party are pretty baked into this liberal party. You have not only, and I just don't mean the accumulated baggage and scandals because that's, I mean, there's nothing remarkable about an eight year old government having accumulated baggage, but I also think the idea that this particular group of people are going to, have substantial either personality or policy pivots and will embrace a whole new ways of, of doing things. You know, like one liberal friend of mine recently was talking a little bit about like we uh, revising the comms plan. And I, first of all, I think there's a degree of shared delusion among the liberal party that their problem is communications. I think that's fundamentally wrong, but I think more to the point, even if they did have a completely revised comms team and a completely revised comms plan, that comms team and comms plan would still be commsing the worldview of Justin Trudeau. Well, and let's 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 go back to their comms plan and comms plan as grocery theater. So, I want to put a pin in that. But first, I want to have a quick conversation about a Twitter conversation that I had was absolutely fascinating. About, I made this comment about the Twitter being stuck in the '90s, and hmm. you know there was a a, a, tw- a liberal supporter who was like, "Well, at least it's not the conservatives stuck in the '50s." And of course, it was by a, a a liberal or sorry, a liberal supporter or a tweeter who had the fifty four in his in his Twitter bio, Twitter Twitter handle. And I was like, "You were born in nineteen fifty four, weren't you?" Of course, he's like, judging me because I'm old. I was like, "No, I'm judging you because you're looking as a typical boomer who was raised in the sixties and seventies would. You're looking at the fifties as being the, this period of 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 stagnation and and ancient corruption." And your peak, your your high, your best years came in the '90s. And it, I had a fascinating response from somebody who was much younger, who was responding to this this guy who was born in '54, and saying, "You don't understand. From a millennial point of view, we look back in the '50s and say that was the golden age. 
we look back at the 50s and say, yeah, okay, civil rights and, 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 and social justice issues, we're not justifying that. Like, but you're telling me you can afford a house. Built, houses were being built. A car in every driveway. You know, my wife didn't have to go to work because I can afford to feed the kids. I yeah. had a job for life. I, I, consumer spending was great. Like, people who are younger don't look back at the 50s yeah. and see the value of the dolls. They're looking back at the 50s and saying, holy shit, your quality of life was amazing compared to mine. Yeah, and, and me, I know my such... history well enough to know that the 50s was not a golden age, but I also know no. when you have a housing-starved generation pointing to the generation when we were just throwing up new subdivisions like they were going at a style is not a good play. Well, and when you have a generation that that feels like, and there's an entitlement issue here, but feels like we did everything right. We got the education, we took on the debt, we we, we did everything we were supposed to do. And the social contract, the unwritten social contract was that we were going to be able to, to have a nice house and, and raise some kids because we did everything we were supposed to do with everything that our parents told us we needed to do. And the social contract there has broken. It, yeah. it, it's just gone now. You, you go to university, take on $20,000, $30,000, $40,000 of debt. That doesn't guarantee you shit anymore. Um, and that, it's really easy for people who have been raised under that sort of broken and that disillusionment to look back on the social contracts of the 50s and say, Man, that wasn't so bad, you know? Imagine imagine being able to be a housewife and have a nice house and my husband going to work and I could take care of my kids. That that would be amazing, you know? And of course, it's rose-colored glasses, grass is always greener, of course, of course. But to me, it was such an interesting generational outlook, right? Like it was just a different way of viewing the past and the future, right? Imagine we could keep our medical technology and advances in human rights, but also have ma- like t- full employment, cheap housing, gleaming new infrastructure in brand new communities. And all the food we could eat very affordably. Just like cartons Sorry. of smokes. Yeah. This is yeah. like, this is, this is, this was your dark time, was it? Like, I, yeah, that's there's that's that's an interesting insight. I that hadn't occurred to me, but as soon as you went there, I understood because when I picture the fifties in my mind, I picture the nuclear family standing in front of their new sp- split level rancher with their nice with new the, Cadillac going with to the station going to wagon the, in the driveway to the, to the to the to the to the family vacation to Disneyland every year. Yeah, right. Mom, that dad, is the dream. Three kids with the dog. That is the dream that most people my age, like we would love, we aspire to that now. And no, we and again, have it. no, I know, again, and again, like the, the dad, like with hindsight now, we know that the dad was a traumatized Second World War veteran. The mom was on Valium and one of the kids was a closeted gay. Oh, but yeah, absolutely. Like, but at the same time, it's like you're looking at, oh, sorry, like you're, you're telling you women today aren't on pills. Like it's, it's, <laughs> you know, like have, have you seen the, the rates of, drugs were on now like it's 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 value the idea that that was value of the dolls and this isn't is 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 kind of an interesting one so like as i said i don't like to go back and look at the past in rose colored glasses because i understand that that is a that's a fantasy it's a fantasy of the past yep. right but we had but, houses uh, but they had houses and they had if they were looking forward to the future and you know they could they could fill the pantries you know on once on one salary and one income gee whiz Gee whiz. You know, some of y'all, and this is wildly off topic, but I just mentioned this as an observation. We can move on after this because uh, I know you want to talk about groceries in particular. So I live in the neighborhood my parents grew up in, 
Um, I was I was born here, but did not grow up here. And then I moved back to it. And one of the things that was very interesting when my wife and I, who both grew up in Toronto's 905 suburbs, when we moved when we were moving back to Toronto for for lifestyle and convenience and, and work reasons, one of the things we had to do a big mental adjustment on was the size of the houses. And I think this was easier for me than her. I think I kind of just had to etch a sketch my brain a little bit and just like all preconceived notions are gone. Excuse me. Um, but what I remember thinking was like the master bedroom in the Toronto houses we were looking at, which had been renovated to cram in a couple of closets and a tiny little ensuite bathroom was smaller than the bedroom I had as a kid growing up in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. The idea of having a guest room in your house is what? You have an entirely different room that you just leave empty most of the time. And it was a really interesting thing because like my um, my grandparents raised four kids in a house half the size of what my parents raised two kids in. Mm -hmm. Something radically changed in our, and I, I say this a lot, in our expectations, right? So I wonder. Yeah, but then at the same of, time, you've got young parents trying to raise kids in condos, in, one bedroom condos boxes. now. Yeah. Right. The generational expectations will reset again. So you and I were of a generation where double double car driveways, two car garages, a closet in every bedroom, an extra bathroom on the main floor, so you don't have to go upstairs to pee. It saves you the fourteen steps. That was. It lasted basically two generations. And now there's an entire generation aspiring for it and they ain't going to get it. And they are well, pissed. And, and here's the other breakdown is that then what we see is the breakdown of a two-tiered society, right? Where you still have one generation that can afford or one a, a society in which one demographic through the benefit of generational wealth and all the rest can have still afford that nice big house in the suburbs, even if it's, as, as it's crumbling, because we're not building new ones like that. And then another generation that are perpetually trapped in the condo cycle, trying to raise kids on, on as if it, as if we're living in Tokyo and have some kind of massive lack of 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 land. Like we, fucking Canada, we have no shortage of land. So anyway, it's 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 a it's a it's a problem, and it's going to become more of a problem. But anyway, the thing I just wanted to go back to the thing I pinned earlier, and that is the the grocers. Well, it's groceries and housing. Firstly, the liberals have taken a page out of the liberals housing strategy and said, well, we're going to start tying funding to yeah. seeing um, governments uh, actually or municipal governments actually, you know, try and fix some of their nimbyism problems. When I saw this in the in the conservative housing strategy, I really liked it. I thought that that was smart. Oh, but only if you're tying funding specifically to outcomes, not inputs. In other words, you need, you need, I've had this rant before. You need to oh, tie the funding. Too. You need yeah. to have, you, you can't tie the funding to a, a municipal government lifting zoning restrictions. You yeah. need to tie the funding to actual units built. Like you, you yeah. need, that's the outcome you're trying to incentivize, not some hypothetical process thing. I don't care how the, how the, municipal government goes about getting the units built get more land rezone not the federal government's problem tie the funding to the outcome not to the input yeah no i think you're absolutely right to bring this up for two well first of all the, the big picture reason you're supposed to do this is because canada is chronically input focused the yes. politician shows up and goes we've heard your complaints about 
unfortunate issue X community, which is why our government is committed to spending $14 million over the next five years to address X. And everybody goes, oh, wow, that's great. And then they do like golf claps. And then for the next three years, any time X manifests itself, the politician goes, whoa, 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 we've already spent seven of the budgeted $14 million to address X. And then meanwhile, no one tracks whether or not X is getting better or worse. Yeah. And it's usually getting worse because we're not we're, we're just spending money on it. The other issue specifically about this is that I I, I will give credit to the, to the liberals here. Like after weeks of being adrift, they've actually come up with a couple of coherent ideas yeah. on affordability. GST, for example, is one that Mike Moffat is, has been raising for a really long time. Probably top on his list. Great. Yeah. Super. Take the GST off the construction of purpose rental build housing. Uh, purpose rental build housing, as I've learned, as I've been educating myself, does not generate the rate of returns as other forms. And there are less developers interested in doing it because they can make more money with their work crews and their capital budgets doing other things. This helps rebalance that a bit. Like, this is a really good idea. But what I think is going to happen is that the feds are going uh, to say, to your point, they're going to say the municipalities, you want our box for the light rail system. You want our box for the bridge or whatever. That's fine, but you're going to have to approve a bunch of new houses. You're going to have to change the zoning, and then the the cities will do that. But then what they'll do is they'll say, "Hey, we we we've upzoned everything. Like quadplexes are now approved by right here, pending yeah, an every, environmental review and a neighborhood yeah, or impact assessment." A neighborhood impact set, or, it's like and like we, and we thought that this quad this quad was a great idea, but then we got a hundred complaints from the yeah. local community who were worried about community character. So we Don't changed worry. the zoning. It'll be approved, but it's going to be an eight year delay while it all goes through the bureaucracy because and- now you've got ten times the complaints and two bureaucrats at city hall doing it. And this your is why point, you need if it's you, not outcomes, it's not it's not outcome exactly. You, if you if you're not tying the outcomes, to, if you're not in, actively incentivizing municipalities to bulldozer down bulldozer through the NIMBY complaints and say fuck it, we're going to build the housing anyway, um, then that is what's going to happen every time. So um, the, yep. that that's an interesting thing about the housing thing. The other thing I wanted to say is that the liberals are going back to the well on grocery theater. We're going to raise taxes on grocery store. Some kind of windfall profit uh, profit tax. Yeah. Okay. So the average margin on groceries is 3%, just so that, that we're that clear. Yeah. So groceries are extremely dependent on commodity prices and supply chain issues. Um I mean, if you want to do a windfall profit or or sort of a a one-time tax on windfall profits, I guess you could hypothetically do that. But groceries aren't notoriously profitable even now. So this is all stupid, pointless theater that will achieve absolutely nothing. You and I have talked about this before. What a big factor in currently driving the cost of food higher is agricultural prices. Where remember you had written a column about how um, the the beef herds in Alberta are getting smaller because the cost of sustaining them got higher, yep. which a year down the line drives up the price of of red meat and so on and yep. so forth. So, I I I understand the raw political appeal from the perspective of the Trudeau government of go pick a fight with the grocery companies. Galen Weston, make him your villain. Galen Weston is going to turn around and put the hammer down on the agricultural producers or the small farmers every politician loves to talk about. And any any ding to the uh, profitability of the grocery stores will just be made up on other categories. So and then you the mentioned the low margins is- on food. 
they they nail you on everything else you buy in the store. Yeah, that's that's it. The other problem that I have here is honestly, until and I say this to the liberals and the conservatives, until you're talking about supply management, fuck off and die. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. Like everything else is, this is the lowest of the low hanging fruit on food prices is supply management. Food prices are too high, except for milk and cheese. They're priced perfectly. Yeah. Moving on. Like, like until you were willing to, to to piss off Quebec and dismantle supply management in order to get a handle on food prices and increase competition in order to get a handle on food prices, foad move like I'm done. Um, yeah. there's two ex- other things. There's two other things that I wanted to touch on, but I wanted to touch on briefly. One was the correction that we got notice of. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Whoop. Bless you. But I don't know if you want to get into the other fact that we have discovered the secret behind the well you know what yes i do so cover the the secret the secret cause of all social media brain worms you and i figured it out yesterday yeah i think we should i don't think we should hold that back from the people but why don't you tell us about the um the correction we got okay so last week in the dispatch we were talking about how one of the problems with uh uh, race-based leniency in sentencing is essentially that it doesn't take into effect the um it's not mitigated by increasing punishment on people based on their victim status. So for example, how should I say this? I'm trying to explain this in the quickest way possible without summarizing a 2000 word piece I did yesterday, did last week. Um, All right. If you are creating a race-based system where all black and indigenous people get a significant discount for the crimes that they commit or are convicted of committing, Sorry, I'm summing up again. In in recognition of the historical injustices that they experienced yeah, in intergenerational yeah, yeah. trauma. Absolutely. The problem with that is that most crimes that of a serious nature happen within ethnic groups, not between ethnic groups. Correct. So if you're giving, if you are habitually giving people of a certain ethnic group a break on sentencing, what you're actually doing is you're creating um, disproportionate justice outcomes for certain ethnic groups of victims so if i get murdered my my uh perpetrator is likely to get you know 20 years to life who's likely to be white who's like because he's likely to be white if if a if a person of color a woman of color gets murdered his her perpetrator is likely to get significantly less as a result because he's more likely statistically to be light white and when you do a a sort of broad-based analysis over time Every individual sentence might make sense, but when you you look at all of the sentences in aggregate, what you are going to find is 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 a major sentencing discount. Yeah, for that you'll get sentenced victims. to less jail on average if you kill a, a black woman than a white woman. Yeah, exactly. Now, um, I think I was more careful in how I wrote this than how I said it in the last dispatch because I got um, a, 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 a complaint from a lawyer who took issue with my analysis, and he said look, the criminal code actually do have provisions to prevent this kind of race-based discounting. And they said, he pointed to uh, 718.04, creates an aggravating factor where the offense is committed against a member of a vulnerable group, especially Aboriginal women. Uh, Section uh, 718.2, aggravating factor when offense is is motivated by bias, hate, or prejudice. And 718.201, aggravating factor for intimate partner violence offenses where the victim is female and especially if the victim is both male and Aboriginal. So he is correct to point that out, all right? So he's 1,000% correct. The problem with that is how this actually works in practice is that, yes, if it's a white person harming a member of a vulnerable group, particularly an Aboriginal person, 
yes, that is the situation in which um, the race of the victim will become an aggravating factor and it will increase the punishment of the white person. 100%. Yes, he's he's correct to correct me on this. Let me be very clear on this. But as we've said, that's more, that is more rare than people within groups killing each other. And so, for the very simple reason that you're normally killed by someone you know. Yes. And the problem with this is that in practice, I have yet to see the <clears throat> race of a victim be used as an aggravating factor in order to mitigate the leniency granted by things like Ledoux. Uh. That's that's the problem. Like, yes, absolutely. If you are a person of a privileged majority group and you are committing a crime against a more vulnerable group, yes, you will get punished more heavily as a result of that, as you should. That it's is correct. It's but picked in, right? If I'm a white dude stalking indigenous women, they want someone to slap me with, and I'm fine with that. Fine. But Yeah, I'm fine with that. Yeah. That is correct and appropriate. But the problem is that that those mitigating factors are never used to countermand the leniency demanded yeah. by Gladue. That is the issue. And so you still have the race. And I think that the lawyer who I was talking to would, would concede this point. So you still do have, on the whole, this race discounting that happens. But he is correct to correct me on the fact that that it's not correct to say that the race of the victim is never a factor or considered. Right. No, fair so, enough. Fair enough. And and I and I you'll, you'll write do... something up about that. Yeah, if you want me to, that's absolutely fine. Yeah, just so like, he, yeah we'll stick. Yeah, on and, and 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 I appreciate a specialist coming to me and correcting stuff like that. We the line totally are happy to do that and, ha and happy to deepen that conversation in a more in, a, in in as accurate a way as possible. Yeah. So he's correct. Absolutely correct noted and we will note that in the dispatch yeah no and i mean honestly like i know it sounds like we're nitpicking this guy to death but like when you're when you're right about something you're right about when you're wrong about it it's it's incumbent on us to clarify that and we're yeah. grateful when people who are knowledge like knowledge act like uh sector uh experts in any bit of knowledge get in touch with us and tell us their stuff like this is a huge boon to us so we're grateful for it yeah absolutely should i offer the brain worms cure let's talk about the brain worms cure we've we have we at the line single-handedly pinpointed the origin of what we like to call brain worms, which is basically the uh, phenomenon of watching sane and intelligent people go crazy over time on social media. So this is going to sound weirdly personal, but Jen, I know I speak for, for both of us when I say this. In our private personal lives, you and I are both quiet introverts. Oh, yeah. We are, we are, we are the parents who would drop off, smile at the other parents, but stand fifteen feet away. At the hockey rink, where the the dads who are with our Tim Hortons cup a little bit around the boards from others, we're the quiet ones at dinner parties. If we don't know people, most people don't know this about us because they are exposed to us only when we are communicating. But this is our job. This is our work. When... They don't understand that this actually isn't the natural persona. This is this is this is a um gosh, it's not wrong, but it is it is a persona that has been crafted over many years of some public exposure. I use the P word to describe part of my job. Performance. Not everyone who gets up on stage and is great interacting with a crowd loves to do that when they're at the diner and run into a fan. I, keep doing that while I blow my nose. I am occasionally recognized when out in public, and I know I know uh, Jen is as well. And it's always flattering, but it's awkward uh, because it kind of feels like my two worlds have collided. It's, you know, a minute ago I was 
Matt, who's just a husband and a dad and a guy at Canadian Tire buying dog treats or something. And the next thing I know, I'm talking about work. It, And I'm not, I don't mean, to, this is not a complaint. I don't say this to complain. I'm just saying introverts whose jobs require them to perform can learn how to do it, but they're never going to enjoy that part of it. For me, performing on a podcast, on a radio show, in a column is a cost of doing business. It's not itself desirable. Yeah, I, and, I like to write because I like to write and I have things to say. Yeah. The fact that people know my name is weird and uncomfortable. I was, I mean, I was I was joking with you the other day, Jen, that my career allows me to monetize what would otherwise be boring my family. Because I'm gonna I'm telling somebody what I think about the issues of the day. I can either be dropping it all onto my dad or my wife or my mom or i can just write it down and then random people read it um one of the things that happened over covid was that people who had never before had much of a public profile all of a sudden suddenly did this included medical professionals it included some logistics experts it included public health officials people who were experts in certain laws uh constitutional things all of a sudden, we as a society, we didn't need sports analysts and political commentators anymore. We needed experts in niche things. And I think what what has happened, because you and I had said years ago, years ago, and we said it in public, when the pandemic ended, most of these people who are probably wired the way we are, they're going to go back to their day jobs. They're going to go back to their office or their practice or their their factory or whatever it is. And they're going to be relieved that people aren't calling them every day to ask them to go on TV and do a live hit to explain something where thousands of lives are hinging on it. Some but percentage some... of people loved it. Yep. And you and I had said, I guess it was about two years ago, we had been talking about what we kind of lazily describe as the doctors, but it's more than that. It was sort of a small group of people who became instantaneously famous in this country as media celebrities because of the specific circumstances of COVID, you and I and, said- And their expertise, yes. That they were going to try and pivot to something else. Well, they over, were time, going... over time, they became more and more unhinged. And, and more and more- And that they locked, wouldn't let it go. And more and more locked into the constant perpetuation of COVID as a threat because- this was their source of their, I mean, narcissistic supply is probably too harsh, but it was the source of, of attention that they really enjoyed. And up until now, had not had the opportunity to acquire or obtain. But we, we were talking about this in the context of COVID. But I think that this distinction is important to note because it's not just COVID. Oh, no, it's, it's not. Journalists no. are notorious for this. The difference between the journalists who are able to maintain a long-term public profile and the difference and the journalists who become lunatics on Twitter are that the latter group, sorry, the former group do journalism because they just like doing journalism and they don't really care if you pay attention to them or not. And that Twitter and is a thing you do to promote your work and to build Twitter's a brand. Twitter is a thing you do to, or, or maybe argue or whatever, but you're it's not. Necessary necess evil. It's a necessary evil. And then there's the group of journalists for whom Twitter became the job. Yeah. And it's the performance. They, the performance became the work. And 
those people are absolutely inevitably, and I'm, I've seen them on the left, I've seen them on the right, they are inevitably going to get sucked into craziness and they're inevitably going to get brain worms because they actually don't have the the the, the ballast, the rooting in the love of the work itself to prevent that. It's always going to be audience chasing. You know, so even though, they go nuts. Yeah, even though we've already said it's not limited to COVID, COVID's a good example of it. Some of them, I think, have struggled to let COVID itself go. But I think others kind of read the next the thing. social justice issues, yeah. um, uh, standing up for the healthcare system. And I'm not commenting on the climate the, change. Yeah. I'm not yeah. commenting on the worthiness of the issue, of but course. certain people, once they've gotten addicted to being an activist with a profile and an audience, they're never going to let that go. Are you and addicted? Also, are, are, you, are you using your platform to further a cause or is the cause an excuse to further your platform? Yeah, That's- to keep the that, engagement and the dopamine hits coming in. Yeah, that becomes that becomes the issue. And uh, as I said, the other thing, the other classification of people who really fall into this problem is academics. Mm. We've seen this. If I see an academic complaining about how that unqualified journalist who's not done the PhD work that I've done, when you see that kind of academic get really resentful about public attention, what that academic is revealing to you is what motivates them. Right. They don't realize that the reason why that journalist has successfully built that public profile is because that public profile is incidental to them. It's not part of what they do. They don't care. Uh, one of the things. Yeah. 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 First of all, I, I had a, when you said that I had an immediate I don't know who you were talking. We both about. we both know who I'm subtweeting there. I think I do. But I'm going to ask you after we stop recording. <laughs> um, the other thing, though, and I, I say this like it might sound like you and I are looking down on these people and to an extent i guess we are because we think they're fucking up their lives but i would also say i have some sympathy for these people because you and i problem you and i built public profiles the old-fashioned way um which sounds silly in the age of social media but we toiled in junior jobs in media outlets we gradually got bigger assignments we very gradually built a profile um, we were able to learn how to navigate this stuff with and surrounded I, by a team of experienced of mentors who helped mentors, us and it and happened also, gradually and it happened gradually and also I think as a result of that you and I both were able to grow up and become people I'm not saying that like I've always been super smart on Twitter I've gotten into stupid shit and fights and whatever I'm not saying I'm innocent of that but I don't love that. I don't enjoy that process. But you and I both were able to grow up and become stable human beings with a sense of self. And, you know, as a result, the public profile and the public persona part of it isn't who we are. Like it's, it just isn't. I've, um, I've used as an example, and I don't even know what she's up to these days, but I've used as an example of this Lindsay Shepard before, who Mm -hmm. one day is a grad student at Laurier and the next day is either a champion in or an enemy of the culture wars mm-hmm. known to hundreds of millions of people. What does that do to a person? And think about the pandemic yes, when yeah. it comes along, right? Like you've got a very finite number of guys who are experts in infectious diseases, who are experts in vaccine production or experts in ventilators or experts in pharmaceuticals who have probably fielded a half dozen media requests in their life who are all of a sudden on every television network in the country almost every day. And their the Twitter other... their Twitter accounts go from like a hundred followers 
evenly mixed between like colleagues, friends, family, and whatever their hobby is, like they're baseball fans or something. And the next thing you know, they've got 93,000 followers from a public that is desperate for information during a life-threatening emergency. And fame is a drug, man. And it is, it's a bad drug. I mean, the other obvious person we can point to it's, as an example of this is Jordan Peterson. Starts oh, yeah. out as a as a clinical psychologist. He has, I mean, I watched his early lectures on, on YouTube. They're lots of fun. Like watching his like psychology lectures to undergrads, great time. Yep, quirky you know? U of T prof to quirky international CMOM in two years. In two years. And then, you know, in that process winds up to get, winds up, I mean, whether or not how you feel about Jordan Peterson aside, in that process winds up getting a debilitating benzo addiction, has to escape from the public eye for months as he's, as he detoxes in Russia and is now on the lion diet. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like, like the dude is, 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 what's the metaphor I'm looking for that isn't inappropriate? Like. It's a hell of a roller coaster for him. That's a hell of a, and that is as a on a human level, that's a hell of a lot for anybody. Fame warps your mind, it warps your perception, it warps your relationships with other people. It's not a healthy thing, and it's nothing to be pursued for its own sake. The only reason why you why you should permit fame to happen to you is that it's a necessary evil to do what you need to do to make a living and 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 do what you love. I get it, recognized in public a couple of times a year. And that's, that's plenty. Like yeah. someone will walk by, it's like, Hey, I saw you on the CBC or I loved your column in. And I'll say, Oh, thank you. And then I'll be like, Oh, I'm there. dying inside. Maybe this isn't a particularly useful insight, but like fame, fame is fame will distort you. Fame will break you. Um, unless you, unless you, especially if that's what you live for. It's, I mean, maybe that's not, Hey, maybe this is a really dumb thing to say. Maybe this well, is really obvious. No, I mean, it's not that obvious, right? Because like, go back and read about the first astronauts in the 60s and how like NASA didn't have like a functional press office and how they mm -hmm. had to learn when you induct new astronauts, you need to basically protect these guys. The uh, NBA today is actually considered a leader in taking 17 year olds from like suburban Chicago who are unusually tall and shoot baskets really well and then signing them to a $14 million contract, but also putting in supports around them, which is mentors, veterans, financial planners. So the NBA kind of led on that one, and other leagues have followed suit. The NHL will often uh, take a young player and billet them with a with a, a veteran guy on the team. The, what I was going to say is that we used to have a system like this within newsrooms. This yeah. is why this is why newsrooms were so important because part of what newsrooms did is they put young promising young journalists a they did two things one they gave them actual training by putting them in low profile grunt work for a really that long time that. so which gave them an opportunity to learn skills but also to grow up mm -hmm. and then also newsrooms were meant that you as a young professional were constantly surrounded by um, columnists who have had made the leap into a degree of fame and also editors who were there to protect you from saying stupid shit that would get you into trouble um and protect you from from the impacts of that but would also potentially insulate you from from uh negative impacts so what we used to do in newsrooms is that when we got angry angry letters which always used to be handwritten or hand typed right you'd put them on the wall and all the colleagues would laugh at the angry letters that you got which had a very effective it was a very effective way of of creating took, interpersonal camaraderie but also the sting out of them too the sting out of them and it allowed people to take 
what was fair criticism out of those letters and say, look, this person's just a nasty and happy person. It's not about me. One of the things that the dismantling of the of the newsroom environment has has really done is it's put young journalists in this incredibly difficult, isol- utterly isolated position where they have no mentorship, no ability to build profile gradually, and really no love and appreciation or, or very few opportunities to develop, to be here for the right reasons, to develop a love and appreciation for the actual work itself. And then when they get famous, they kind of go off the rails. I mean, one of the clear examples of this, and I'm sure I'm not going to get sued, but is like Faith Goldie. Classic example of this, right? I don't know if she'd be the one I'd reach to first, but yeah, I guess in broad terms, it applies. And I think that's one of the things that's happened in our industry is like the traditional talent pipelines have broken down. You and I yeah. both were accelerated into columnist roles faster than we normally would have yeah, due to we attrition. Were. Yep. But it's been even faster for people behind us. So some yeah. guy writes a good blog and sends it to an editor and it gets it's spicy and it's topical and it's relevant. So it gets put on the homepage. It gets 200,000 hits on the homepage. Then it's all over Reddit, Twi- Twitter. Well, not, not Facebook anymore. And then all of a sudden this dude whose previous writing experience was like the family's annual Thanksgiving update letter and maybe like a long Facebook post is the center of the national discourse for a day. And some people go, huh, well, that was interesting. Others are like, I got, I got, I got to do, I got to do that again. I got, I got to get more. I got to get my next hit. I got to get it. I got to get it. And this will inevitably lead you down a rabbit hole of click chasing and click chasing will inevitably lead you, lead you to dark places. It, it, it has in every case I've seen. I think the last columnist in this country and I, people at other papers might quibble with me about this. Uh, there might be someone, but in Toronto, at least the last columnist to come up in a relatively coherent ecosystem, I think was Robin Urbach. And I mm. hired her at the post Mm-hmm. I think she was the last like A-lister because she's at the Globe and Mail now. I think she was the last one to get in when there was still an ecosystem Something after that. It, yeah. Well, after that, it was out. a lot of people who were Twitter famous first. Maybe. Anyway, I've got to go pick up my son from school. Okay. Well, we've talked a lot anyway. Anyway, don't don't be famous. It's not good for you. Be famous no. enough to make the money you need. And build and not, your life and, outside. Not of that. an inch and not an inch more. Not an inch more. Not an inch more. Okay. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the latest episode and perhaps the last episode of the Lines Experimental Podcast before we launch a whole new adventure.